Welcome in to Natchez Glenhouse Stories. And um, our guest this week is one of my favorite people. For There's a, there's a multitude of reasons. Um, a, I, I think, as many people know, I have been fans of people from a gardening perspective for a decade plus now. And Michael Marriott is one of those people I have been a fan of. And I get to say this, Michael, for the first time in you being on here with me, the recently retired from David Austin yep. Rose's Michael right. Marriott. How is <laughs> retirement going? Obviously, it's an interesting year also to to have retired in 2020. Um, what's it like? Uh, it's 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 been 1985 was the start at David <laughs> Austin. So it's it's been a while. Yes. Well, I... You know, the, the, everybody says when you when you retire, you sort of suddenly become even busier than uh, ever before. And I didn't really believe it. And uh, and actually now I'm starting to see that, oh gosh, there's so many things going on. And uh, I don't know where to um, where to start with all of it, actually. But uh, yeah, it's great. So really enjoying, uh, um, <clears throat> well, for one of the things is commuting to work, which is a bit of a drag every day. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's given me great freedom to to do other things that I want to pursue, and and also just spend time gardening, which has always been one of my great loves. So actually, you know, getting out there into uh, into our garden, we got close onto an acre of garden, I suppose, um, and uh, including the sort of fairly intensive vegetable and fruit area, which takes up a lot of time. So yeah, we need to spend a, a, a lot of time there, keeping it all up ship shape, and always new plants to plant and areas to um to re-landscape have you taken any time and i I don't know if you're the personality type that would do this or not to reflect at your time at david austin and the accomplishments that you were a part of there I, i made a comment the other day in mentioning you in an instagram live that the david austin rose that so many of us in the gardening world maybe take for granted if not for your work there along with David, we probably wouldn't know it. We, we wouldn't be as familiar with it as we are today in 2021. Have you taken any time to reflect on that at all? Well, I, mean, I, I do think I, I was incredibly lucky. I mean, I did join David Austin at exactly the right time because before I joined, um, the English Roses were hardly known. And it was in 1983, I think, that three varieties uh, that really changed the face of the English roses, the Austin varieties, were introduced. So that was um, Heritage, Mary Rose, and then the one that's so well known, of course, is Graham Thomas. And so that was in 1983, and that meant that um, when they were introduced at the Chelsea Flower Show, um, they were publicised, and everybody wanted to see these roses and see David Austin roses. Uh, And uh, so that's when... You know, serious horticulture started taking note of what David Austin was doing, both in the UK and around Europe and North America and as far afield as Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and uh, so I joined in 1985, very early in 1985. So money started coming in, <laughs> which meant that wages could be paid. Nursery started growing on a significant, um, uh, significant rate every year. And... Um, uh, some interesting people came to to visit the nursery, and I sort of one of my jobs there was um, was actually more or less the front person because David Austin, uh, being a fairly shy person, didn't particularly want to meet a lot of these people. So I had this uh, lovely task of having to meet 
um, you know, well-known horticulturalist or, or at least entertainment for lunch or whatever, and photographers, showing photographers around and things like that. So, I mean, I, the, to me, that was um, the, a wonderful thing to do, um, to, to get into seriously into the horticultural world. And um, in those days, I was um, nursery manager, so I was, I was spending a lot of my time actually working out in the field. But that gradually changed, and uh, I was designing more and more rose gardens, uh, again, around the world. Um, and then after, I don't know how many years, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, I sort of gave up all the practical side of doing the um, production side of it, which is always a, a big challenge. You know, when, when you're responsible for growing any crop uh, outside, uh, it's your your battling with nature, and you know, battling with nature is can be very hard work sometimes. And because uh, you're never under control, you never know what the next day or next week is going to bring. Uh, and uh, so then I gave up all that side, which is actually a great relief for me. And I could concentrate solely on on on, on lecturing and uh, doing workshops and uh, designing rose gardens around the world, uh, and also being the, the front uh, person of the of the nursery. So and and as time went on, more and more um, really interesting people came along to the nursery, and I also gave me a huge chance to to travel several times around the world. So. Uh, Know, many times, two or three times to the States, uh, around Europe, um, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, South America, and uh, China and Japan as well. So it's, it's been actually a uh, very, very good, uh, very good time. How, in at that time, when you're, you're meeting all these people, do you look back at that and see how it influenced your view of just the, the world of horticulture at large, I'm sure even beyond just roses, you're, you're interacting with so many people across the world, people coming there to see what is going on at David Austin, that I've got to imagine you had some days where they, you know, maybe your mind was almost blown, Michael, because you're dealing with some of these people that are like luminaries of, of the horticultural yeah. world. And suddenly- Absolutely you're having this one-on-one -on -one time with them. How influential in shaping your view of the world of plants and horticulture was it? Um, it well, it's increased my, um, my knowledge. I mean, I've always been, ever since I was a very small person, I've always been fascinated by plants and, uh, and gardening. And um, so that, that has enabled me to develop that to to a much greater degree to, see, to be able to visit famous arboretums and public gardens botanical gardens around the world and see the huge range of um, of, of different plants available and you know sort of like going to the states uh, if ever i was in california i always had to make a trip to the huntington library because i just think that's just such a you know the cactus garden there is just uh, one of just the most amazing things, uh, amazing gardens uh, uh, in the world. Uh, it's enabled me to to join to become a member of the um, Royal Horticultural Society's uh, Woody Plant Committee, uh, where I meet uh, you know these very very well known uh, plants people like Roy Lancaster, you know who who was. Uh, spent such a lot of time hunting plants from uh, all around the world and Morris Foster all similarly and in fact had a meeting with them uh, this afternoon uh, and also it's it's confirmed um, uh, that uh, horticulture the garden world is is just full of the most lovely people uh, you know in my 
35 years of, well, more in horticulture, uh, I, I, there's literally one or two people which I think, well, you're not a very nice person. Uh, but everybody else has been absolutely delightful. And um, so it's, uh, I mean, if anybody's, um, you know, wondering about going into horticulture or thinking about a career change, I thoroughly recommend horticulture. I mean, it's such a diverse field. There's so many different uh, avenues you can go along uh, from actually being a, a gardener, which is a wonderful thing to do, to you know, doing garden design or a consultant or doing research in some aspect of plants or gardens. It's such a diverse thing. And, and I think it's just such a, an absolutely wonderful field. Have you noticed recently, and maybe this is a byproduct of the, the pandemic, um, the conversation in the world of horticulture seems to be broadening quite a bit. I feel like we're, we're talking more about what you just said, that the diversity of it from ecology to design to, to just the, to propagation. I mean, there's everything. The umbrella is far larger than maybe some people had thought from the outside looking in. Have you noticed that at all? It just feels like we're, uh, Renaissance might be a strong word, Michael, but we're, we're, we're seeing people look at it maybe uh, with a little bit more depth than even in years past. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a hu huge uh, move towards uh, gardening in this country, certainly, and growing your own, you know, growing your own fruit and vegetables and things like that. And so, in fact, um, from a year ago when all the problems started, really, uh, the nursery started emptying out uh, seeds and uh, and other plants are growing fruit and vegetables were just sold out just like that and uh, the same this year as well you know we have to you have to be really on the ball to make sure you're not going to miss out on buying your vegetable seeds or your, your your fruit trees or something like that and just general general plants we, people have uh, obviously a bit more time to, uh, to to look at their garden and uh, the other thing is actually interestingly um, I mean, maybe two years ago there were sort of, I don't know, two, I suppose, major gardening programs on television. Uh, and uh, now my partner is, is actually in the horticultural TV world. And she's, uh, she's been offered all sorts of different jobs with various gardening programs uh, for television. A uh, huge range, of some, some good and some more sort of just not good ones, more, more sort of... Um, I don't know, seeing gardening as entertainment, uh, which uh, is, is, has its value. Um, but, you know, it depends how, um, how you want to look, look at how, what, how you want to be employed in the horticultural world, really. Uh, but yes, it, there's a, a huge move towards um, greater interest in gardening. And of course, the best thing about that is the gardening uh, is the best thing for the, for the mind and the body. You know, the mind, you're, you're thinking about how you can how you can improve your garden, what plants you can plant there. You do research, uh, you ask people, and then in terms, of, and then the end result is hopefully going to be beneficial to uh, to your brain as well, and your eye, and to your nose, uh, and to your mouth as well when you start eating vegetables and things like that. Uh, and uh, physically, it's uh, very good for you as well because there you are out there, hopefully digging and uh, moving plants around and planting things. So it's uh, bending all over the place. It's just the, the best thing you can do for, for the mind and the body. You mentioned your garden design work uh, a couple of times previously. And I think that's something that when it comes to roses is still a challenge 
for people that roses are are one of the absolute best garden plants with perennials and companions and and really incorporating them yeah do you think that challenge exists for some people in working with them that so much of what had been shown in the world over the last hundred years visually were more in your classic rose garden collections that it was just exclusively roses yeah yes uh i i think I think it's increasing um, less and less of a problem, less and less that people think of roses as just planting them in rose gardens and in rose borders and, you know, just a, a row of roses with nothing except bare soil around them. <laughs> just, I, I think it looks absolutely dreadful. I mean, you, you can have a formal planting uh, of roses and it can look good uh, as long as you plant them reasonably close together. But of course, it's been inculcated in us uh, from an early age, uh, all these rules and regulations about how you should prune roses, you know, how you should look after them, you know, distance apart from them. And all of it is, is well, a lot of it, I should say, if not all of it is exaggeration, a lot of it is, is left over from the time when you wanted to grow the perfect rose for the show bench. And, you know, if you wanted to grow the, the, the monster leek or onion or, or potato or whatever, or the, the big davias or chrysanthemums for the show bench, you do all sorts of weird, wonderful things. You know, you, you, you have to plant them far apart. You want to be able to treat your plant to the, to the best, um, uh, best way you can. Uh, but, if you, but that has no relation to just growing a lovely a bed of roses in your garden or, or uh, onions or leeks or dahlias or chrysanthemums. So, but unfortunately, this is still part of the trend of how you've got to, people think about how you should grow roses, you know. So pruning, you know, they, you, you look at the rules and regulations about pruning roses and, oh, yeah. <laughs> let me, let me, uh, this is, I'm going to ask you to go back in time and put on your, your nursery production manager hat here. And from someone that, has worked in the, the large scale of nursery production. Do you think that people um, would be shocked at the difference in approach in nursery production where uh, normally things are done the most efficient way, right? And when it comes to pruning and things like that, it's yeah. much more blunt just this is we're just going to do it this is how we do it It, it's not this rigid approach that so many people on the the home side of it have been shown all these years by some people where it feels like they need you know uh, a special guidebook and can only prune roses on the third day of march of a bit of a brisk (laughs) conversation gloves and doing all sorts of yeah no, I mean, if you if you could see how um, roses are, you know, roses are tough as old boots. They're really, really tough plants. And uh, we, we go over when we want to trim the, the field. Uh, we go over with um, a sort of a I don't know what it is. It's a cutter for making silage, uh, you know. And so it's just it, it goes through and it gets through acres in a day. And if you put a, a, a group of people in there with sectors, it would take them up to months and Sundays. You can't do that. So and uh, so it's, it, it does a perfectly good job. So as long as you, you know what you're doing, uh, roses are, are, are super tough. And um, yeah, they're, they're brilliant plants. When you set out to design, do you, this is a question I've never asked you. 
Do you always use roses? I mean, do you, I mean, I would imagine people that are coming to you have a familiarity with your background. So I'd imagine there's that lean, but how, how have you balanced that just from a design perspective over the years? Um, yeah, I, I've very, very rarely do I, I design areas of just perennials or, or shrubs. I have done bits and pieces, but it's, it's not my field of expertise, as you say. So, um, and I think roses are such good value, then you know, why leave out roses? Roses and perennials look absolutely fantastic together um, because roses are repeat flower. I mean, I always say to people uh, that roses are actually the most garden-worthy of all plants. And after all, what, what other plant can potentially give you the most beautiful individual flower of a fantastic fragrance flower for five or six months of the year or even longer in the you know, warmer climate that you have in the States uh, and be easy to look after. You know, if you just if you try and think of what could be better, what could give you more garden value than the rose, then it's impossible to find anything. And then the other thing about roses, of course, they're so variable. So, you know, some people like single blooms of just five petals, others like very double ones. Uh, then there's the fragrance there as well. So, you know, some are short, some are tall, some are climbers, some are ramblers. Uh, there's a, uh, and you can fit them from everywhere, from the, from the intimate, very small space um, to the large scale. You can cover a whole tree or a whole building with a rose if you want to. Uh, they're, they're, there's, a, there's a rose to fit every situation. When we look at some of them, this is one of the topics that I sent you that I really want to get into here because I find it really interesting that we see um, this new perennial movement, um, Dutch perennial wave, whatever terms we want to put on it to label the more naturalistic design element that is extremely popular and beautiful. Uh, this is in, yeah, in, in yeah, any ways, but we don't see a lot of use of roses in that design. And right before we went on, Michael, one of the things that uh, people like Pete Aldoff always mention is winter interest. And then immediately in my mind, I thought of hips and some of the hips on roses are, are one of the most interesting oh, fantastic. seed heads yeah, of any plant. And some of them last all through the winter. You know, they'll, they'll, I mean, some drop off the, the, in sort of October, November times. Some of them, especially some of the American species, they last right through the winter. Fantastic. Why do you think we're not seeing that bridge, that design gap? more do you think it's just reputation of roses why do you think we're not seeing them incorporated in that stylistic version of what we're seeing in these some of these perennial gardens well i think you do actually because actually if you go to the high line one of the things when i went to the high line um, not too long after it was um, opened up i was wondering oh, you know, i've seen shrubs here are there going to be any roses there and actually they did have not all that many roses, but the species type roses there. So I was um, very pleased to see that. Um, but you're right, not, not too many roses. And, and I think there's, um, for some reason, people disregard, I mean, disregard species roses and, and anything, any rose that only flowers once. Oh no, we don't want that. You know, we want a rose that repeat flowers. And if it doesn't repeat flowers, it's not, not of much interest. So, um, and also roses, it, it, there's a lot of them and people get confused and uh, don't know which ones to, to, to turn to. Um, but uh, yeah, the species, I, I'm a, a particular fan of the, um, the species rose. I think they're a wonderful one, a wonderful uh, group of plants. 
Um, a lot of them are very big, admittedly. You know, they grow six foot plus by six foot across. Um, but there are shorter ones. Um, they okay. They only flower once, but then when they end flower, they, they can be absolutely covered in blooms. And then of course you get um, wonderful autumn colour, fall colour. Some of the leaves colour up absolutely beautiful, like the uh, Rosa Virginiana. Uh, of course, is native to to the states. Uh, it has the most superb autumn colour. And then Virginiana also has hips that last right through uh, the winter. Uh, one of my favourite species roses actually is Palustris, you know, the, um, the, the swamp rose that is again native to the States. Uh, as, as absolutely, I think the blooms of that are absolutely superb. And the great thing about the species roses, you actually shouldn't prune them. If you start pruning them, you're spoiling them. You know, they should be grown as nature intended. Um, just grown up. If you start pruning them, they'll send up awkward shoots and they won't flower so well. So just let them do their own thing and they'll be uh, absolutely delightful. And if you choose the right varieties for your climate, they're absolutely as tough as old boots. Do you, you mentioned this and it, it, great minds think alike on this one, Michael, because I was am trying to work through this, that roses are almost suffering from there are so many. There's just, uh, you know, people complain about something like echinacea now, that there there's so many varieties of it but when you compare you know echinacea let's say let's be bold and say there's 300 cultivated varieties of echinacea on the market now well i mean roses what's the count i mean it's fifty thousand plus um name varieties that people do have that issue where they're almost getting lumped together it's just this horrible thing that many people do on the outside of gardening that it's like they're all the same. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you, David Austin used to introduce five or six new varieties every year, um, but then realized that that wasn't a good thing. And so now it's reduced down to one or two uh, every year, which I think is is good. And also it's a good way of, of being very critical about your variety, making sure that what varieties are introduced um, are really the best you can, you can develop uh, in that year. Um, but yes, a lot of rose breeders around the world, they, they introduce them. Uh, it's seen as a positive marketing ploy. Uh, you get more, so people seem to love buying new varieties of or whatever plants for some reason. I'm always a bit nervous about buying new varieties of plants. I like to see what they're like, first of all. Uh, they might have been brilliant in the place where they were bred in the climate where they're bred but you know how good are they going to be in in your local climate uh and also see see what reviews are like any plant really has to be trialed for many years you can't just look at it for one or two years and say oh yes that's a brilliant plant uh it has to be trialed over many years to see um uh, how actually garden worthy it is uh and um uh, what was the other thought I had along that line there? Um, uh, yes, the, the, um, sometimes they, they, uh, nurserymen can be uh, prone to overhyping their varieties. <laughs> well, and and I, uh, I think that how, because this is something that I see a lot and uh, your general gardening take on this, a lot of the trialing that people are doing are observations in greenhouse settings. And yeah. and that's where for many plants, the first, when people notice them, 
is in that. Yeah. And that's the the furthest environment, clearly, from yeah. the garden. Does that just in general, you know, raise a red flag for you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, most roses are trialed for 10 years before they're introduced because you, you have to really, because you've got to multiply it from the one plant initially, you know, the, the one the one seedling that, you, that, that looks good, and then you've got to, for introduction, you've got to have you know, a few tens of thousands of plants uh, for, for day blossoming. Really. So that takes 10 years to multiply the plants up. Uh, it takes quite a long time. But some plants, of course, you can multiply up much more quickly, especially if you do uh, things like micropropagation or just splitting or cuttings or something like that. Um, but going back to your other question, just um, uh, the other problem is that actually people are, a bit obsessed by novelty, and um, and that's something that really, <laughs> really uh, gets my goat is is uh, introducing varieties on the basis of novelty. Um, you know, oh gosh, this this plant is much shorter than another plant. Um, this plant uh, has flowers that uh, look like a um, I don't know a zinnia. Um, you know, and I can echinacea. You got. A, brought out echinaceas to me look like zinnias you know echinacea to me is one of the most beautiful flowers you can get what, what's the point you know keep that what's the point of let the zinnia produce flowers that look like zinnias and let the echinaceas to produce flowers that look like echinaceas and and so you know you, you have to um so to me what what you want in your garden is beautiful plants you don't want novel plants that are different in some way uh, you want plants that are beautiful. And so I, I rail against the RHS over here in the UK, the Royal Horticultural Society, because they have this plant of the year competition where one of the main base criteria for success is novelty. I would say, I don't want novelty. I want beautiful, good, reliable plants. Are you That's happy to see a little bit, and this is something that when we've had guests on uh, previously, we had Annie Guilfoyle just on recently. She and I had a conversation roughly on this topic as well, that one of the things I'm excited about some of what we see with this more naturalistic planting is it does take it away from some of these novelty cultivar introductions where yeah. we see even species use on some things that were, we're not just, you know, I'm not, now what's funny about this is I could make up a name for an echinacea and then it may in fact actually be a real name where it's echinacea, double purple, grape, something, something, something. But we're seeing it be echinacea pallida. We're seeing different plants come into people's view that are rock solid plants they're beautiful plants but they don't have all of this weird novelty attached to it mm. yeah uh, yes absolutely it's uh, uh, it's um and it causes a lot of confusion on the um committee meeting you have today with the uh, woody plant committee um they're trying to sort out dirtsias and you know dirtsias is a wonderful shrub but there's been so many different varieties introduced over the years and the nurserymen have mixed them up and now there's a com complete con confusion about which which you know there's these collections of dirtsias in various uh, countries uh, various gardens around the country but you know nobody's quite sure whether that's the true variety or there's another variety or what and you know the best of the world nurserymen are not not um uh, infallible 
uh, and so quite often mixes uh, occur. So there's always, <laughs> before they can even start doing an assessment of which dirtier is the best one to uh, plant in your garden, they've got to try and sort out what, what actually is that name of that dirtier there. Uh, so it's, um, yeah. But yes, naturalistic planting has, has been um, very good for um, for going back to the original plants. And of course, um, that's where the species roses look their best. If you try and plant a, a highly hybridized, you know, one of the Austin roses or, or one of the um, hybrid teas or something like that in that, it would just look absolutely completely wrong. Is any of the work, because you mentioned the RH, 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 HS, easy for me to say this morning. Um, Woody Shrub committee that you're on in trying to, because this is this is a good you're a good person to ask this question of. Do we need to start thinking about having a little bit more of a formal or informal way for people to introduce new plants through, in your opinion? Because it does feel like many times they're getting awfully confusing, Michael. And oh, yeah. I, I think, you know, we see, um, I don't, here in the States, euchre is, is a great example of this that we yeah. have, there's euchre and then there's euchre that have Western species origin in their breeding and they don't do well for most of the country. Then there's euchre velosa parentage yeah. and those do better here. But yet in the consumer marketplace, I mean, it's the Wild West. It's just come up with a cute name and, and call it that. And yeah. I feel so bad, Michael, for people who are just, you know, home gardeners that just all these plants are on the market and some of them are just not the best. Or maybe, I hate to say this, I'm, I'm letting you guys in on something that maybe people would be upset that if I say this, but you're buying one under a new name, it might not be a new one. It might be, in fact, oh, one that's been on the market for a decade or yeah. two. They've just renamed yeah. it. That it feels yeah. like we need either the RHS or somebody to step in and be like, hey, we've got a system maybe for this. Yeah. Well, over here in the UK, there's um, the, the new varieties have to be sent to a, to a body that looks at them and decide whether they're um, – there's um, – uh, can't remember what the um, acronym is now, but they have to look at them and decide whether they're um, different from anything that's been introduced before. And uh, in the in the last 20 or 30 years, I think we've had two varieties which have been rejected uh, as not being different enough from uh, previously introduced varieties. So they, they keep a, a stock of varieties which they can compare them with, uh, and we say why we think they're different and then they go and have a look at them. And if they just, if they decide they're not different enough, then they'll um, they'll say no, sorry, you can't introduce that variety. But that's if you're going to um, introduce that variety and want it protected, you know. So if you're going to um, trademark that variety or whatever, because you want to uh, don't want illegal propagation of that variety. Uh, but of course, you you know anybody can if you don't bother about that, you can just uh, introduce whatever you want. Uh, I mean, I, I thought one of the one of the ones I remember years ago um, was sempervivum, you know, or sempervivum, or how you pronounce it, house leek. Um, do you call them house leeks in the states? No, well, I call everything taxonomy, Michael. I don't speak any common name language at all, hardly. So people bring okay. up common names to me, and I don't even know them. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that's called. Okay, so sempervivum. Um, you know, they're all. 
reasonably similar, really. They're sort of a, a rosette of, of uh, leaves, and uh, you know, some have cobwebs on them, and some don't, and some are green, and some are a bit redder. But I know I read there was something like two hundred varieties introduced one year, or something like that. Oh, it, I think I think stone crop is what they will call them here. I don't know if that's sedum. I can't remember, but uh, sedum. I think. Yeah, it, it, you're completely right. Um, Echeveria is another one with houseplants yeah. becoming more popular. That you see them, and they all have some kind of name, either given as a, a, a cultivated variety selection name or just a branding name, which I find really yeah. confusing when yeah. you see plants. Um, I see this a fair amount actually in uh, the world of conifers, that there'll be um, the one that always strikes me is there was a Pinus parviflora, cultivated variety, um, uh, Arakawa, that had been on the market for a long, long time. And then suddenly there was a a grower in the States that gave it a new name and just called it like, you know, blue angel or something like that. And you're, and I, I'm confused by it. Cause I go, when I first see it listed somewhere, I go, Oh, there's this new Pinus parviflora cultivar. And then I look at the tag information and I go, this isn't new. <laughs> this this plant's been on the market for 45, 50 years. So I, I can only, again, imagine for people who who aren't in this world as you know intensely as you and I are, it can be a little overwhelming, like what we're talking about with roses. And I have worried sometimes that people are almost paralyzed by it because it can seem so like, what's what's the good one? What is is there just a people just want that answer sometimes? Just like, what's yeah, the good one? Yeah. Or they buy it on the basis of the name, you know. So I think uh, there's lots of uh, marketing thought goes into naming a rose which is going to be attractive oh yes i'll buy that one for my for my mother or um yeah for, for my uh, wedding anniversary or, or whatever so and of course that doesn't doesn't it doesn't say anything about the, the quality of the plant at all it's just a name it's it's i mean it's it, you can see the positive side about it because then you're giving a you know, hopefully a lovely plant to, to somebody and they can plant their garden and look to, oh yes, and that came from so-and-so, so-and-so. Um, but uh, yes, it's whether it's a, it's a good plant or not. Um, but the other thing is, is um, you know, if, if people don't introduce good plants or they're, they're nursery, nurserymen, garden centres sell plants that are not good for that climate and, and gardeners buy them and then they fail, of course, that's that has a negative impact on them. You know, so they think, "Oh, you know, plants are difficult. I can't garden. I, you know, I, everything I plant dies off." Uh, and it's not their fault at all. Actually, it's um, it's the fault of the plant. So it's it's uh, has a lot to answer for. I, and I think roses are the. In my time in being very vocal on social media, Michael, I don't know if there is any other plant that gets that feedback more that they're difficult is roses oh yeah, yeah and absolutely. what's been so interesting to me and you've mentioned it a couple of times by you know calling them as tough as old boots that i've always had the exact opposite perception now different parts of the country we see a little bit more fungal pressure there's ways you can deal with that through pruning management through just cultural practices that help it some varieties are just better than others but i've always looked at it so the opposite i'm like you can't kill these things 
Like, like they're just, I mean, some of the Austins in particular have what I, I guess would call species vigor to them that it, it's this plant that you can hard cut it back uh, to, yeah. to a point of, yeah. of thinking that most people would panic, Michael, to the degree in which you can cut some of them back. And yet, boom, here we go. We're back. Yeah. How, yeah. how have you seen that? I mean, is, is that been your general, especially here in the States where maybe people are, are less familiar with them? Oh, yes. I mean, they, 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 I, one of the things... I think that people are very scared about roses, and and one if they know one disease in their on the, in their garden, you know it's black spot on roses. So even though it might not be black spot at all, it might be some other physical damage or something. Like that. I don't know, but you know, oh gosh, they got black spot, and oh how dreadful! And then they start picking off all the leaves, and of course the plants doesn't like that at all. You know, you're starving the plant of leaves if you start picking off the leaves, and they don't people don't like doing that because then they get pricked by the thorns and they get they scratched and things like that um you've just got to trust the plant to a, a big degree uh, find out what varieties are good for your area uh, stick to you know ask ask neighbors ask uh, consulting rosarians and things like that find out what varieties are good for for your area um, stick to those varieties uh, and and don't be too worried about a little bit of disease or, or aphid or something like that uh, and um uh, just you know, if it and then prune it. Uh, people are very scared about pruning roses, and I always think that people gardeners come into two schools when they come to prune their roses. Some sort of hardly dare to cut three inches off the top, and others sort of savage them right down to the to the ground. Whereas, in fact, the best thing to do is cut them down to about halfway. You know, if you just cut them down to halfway or somewhere between a third and two thirds. That's almost the, the best thing you can do, I and mean, you'll um, they'll, they'll recover very quickly and look a lot better for it. And if you if you inherit a rose, <coughs> excuse me, that hasn't been pruned uh, well for a number of years, then that's the best thing to do is actually cut it down to within six inches of the ground, and it'll send up beautiful young shoots from the base and uh, look brilliant again. And, and just one last thing: if if uh, a rose is does whatever you do does have dreadful disease and drops its leaves then uh, each year then then as you americans have this lovely phrase that i always uh, repeat is shovel prune it <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, and i think this is something <coughs> that is almost exclusive to the world of of plants michael that when people buy a plant because it's a, a living organism on our earth that we have this expectation that it will live here forever, that this is yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the thought of, hey, I had it for a year or two. It, it didn't perform maybe the way I thought it would. Just to get rid of it is like evicting a member of the family. We just can't bring ourselves to do it, no matter how toxic they might be for us. But what is that? What, what is because you've traveled a ton? Is is this universal across the world, Michael? You think this this view of it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. People are very loath to um, to get rid of plants, but it's the best. You know, if you've got a plant that is full of disease then it's going to be handing it on to its neighbours. I and mean, we found that with the virus going around at the moment. You know, it's, it's, it's just too many people on the planet at the moment. We're, we're travelling around too much. We interact too much. So if we all sort of stayed 
in our own little spaces, then it would be much less of a problem. So um, there's a problem with planting a whole bed of roses. Uh, they're all cheap by jowl, whereas if you mix them up with, with other plants, with perennials and annuals and shrubs, other flowering shrubs, then the, the chance of them getting bad disease is going to be much less than uh, if you planted a whole whole bed of roses. But I always find, you know, at home, if I'm, if I'm there's a plant which I'm sort of looking at and, you know, do I want to keep it or don't, or don't want to keep it? And uh, often the answer is, well, yes, let's get rid of it. And, and it's hard to do. I mean, I, I agree, it's hard hard to get rid of plants sometimes. But actually, usually, as soon as I've done it, it's like, oh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> that was absolutely the right decision to do. Why didn't I do it earlier on? And then, of course, it's great because then it gives you the opportunity to plant something new, to you know, try out new things in that area. So that's that's the whole fun of gardening is not just maintaining your area, you know, pulling up the weeds and pruning and things like that and, and sweeping up leaves, is to, to continually see, well, look at, looking at your garden critically uh, and making decisions about how you can improve that. Yeah, I think, and, uh, I think planting, uh, planting is almost every gardener's favorite part. So for me, whenever you say we can plant something more, so add something. I'm always in favor of let's plant something. Let, let's get something in there. Let's do this. Let's add that. That's to me the creative research moment. All of the the world of possibilities seems to open up in front of you. Y- you mentioned your partner Rosie. You're you're working on a new garden space. Where are you at with that? Do you have a plan for it? Have you have you sat down and designed something? Are you just winging it? Where are you at in your in your development of this garden? Well, it's quite interesting actually because um, it's we actually live in a house. It's sort of divided two halves. It's a set what we call in this country a semi-detached house, and so the other half of the house, uh, so they're mirror images of each other, and the other half of the house and the garden. Had been empty for 35 years, and um, so uh, when we bought the, the one, that, the house that we live in now, um, we always sort of had our eye on this next door because imagine you know, it hadn't been the house hadn't been touched, the garden hadn't been touched for over 35 years. So both were in an absolutely dreadful space. And when we finally got the opportunity to to buy the house and garden next door, um, we we sort of tried to fight our way in but hadn't got very far because it was just an absolute you know it was just completely literally impenetrable we could only get about halfway down the garden and it was just a a wall of brambles um and uh, do you know is it brambles is that what you call brambles them in the yeah just yeah, just weeds yeah. brush uh, shrubs the whole thing <laughs> uh ivy fallen trees um so it was completely impenetrable so when we finally bought the house where well, we got our our, our sectors and our loppers and saw out and, and literally tunneled our way through to the bottom of the garden where we found a brick structure, which we, we'd um, probably an old um, outhouse privy or pig pen or something like that, which we never knew was there before. Um, but because there's, this garden is sort of full of these old apple trees, most of them apple trees, one, two pear trees and plum trees and things like that, lots of ivy growing all over them, it sort of just naturally... Um, and we were very sensitive to this, we naturally divided itself up into different areas. And so we didn't want to sort of do a slash and burn and just clear the whole area. We were, we looked at this, um, this area. Obviously, we cleared out all the brambles as much as possible. 
and um, uh, and so it's it, it's it's really come out extremely well. It's divided the garden into three or four separate areas surrounded by these sort of old trees and half-fallen trees uh, and dead trees, which all, a lot of them draped with ivy. So it's a perfect areas of not too, not too big an area, I don't know, 10, 15 yards by 10, 15 yards, something like that. Uh, and so it's a matter of then deciding what to do with that. And because it's a very wild sort of feeding area of all this ivy draping down, we're going very much for sort of the not anything too designed or um, or artificial. It's, it's going to be very much in a sort of naturalistic uh, garden. So I must say Rosie is doing most of the design next door and choosing her plants. Uh, and uh, we were very lucky to, to find literally thousands of snowdrops uh, growing in the garden. So some of those have been relocated. Um, so, Did you, and, and be- were you aware that it was a garden? At some point you could tell the bones or structure was there enough to be able to tell that something had been cultivated there? Um, only the fact that there was these uh, maybe um, uh, seven or eight apple trees, uh, and uh, that, that's all that was left, really. Um, and uh, so there's no paths, no, um, no nothing. Actually, the only we, we thought we might find some interesting plants. There's a few daffodils in there, and I say thousands of snowdrops, which are flowering like mad at the moment in there, looking very beautiful. Uh, and then the and the other things right at the top of the garden, up by the end, we found actually a couple of roses. Uh, Rambler roses, uh, which I hadn't noticed until this year, and I, actually I can't identify them. They're very small flowers, one's pink, one little multiflora Rambler uh, hybrids. I even sent the flowers to a couple of experts in this country, and, uh, and nobody knows what they are. So that's quite interesting. Interesting. Uh, but apart from that, no, it's it's uh, it's, uh, it's completely empty. But it's it's funny because the, the original path that we we cut through to get to the bottom of the garden. We've actually, even now, we've kept that path because it sort of winds its way round down to the bottom and it's, it's, it has a beautiful feel. Odd little, some areas are very shady, some are sort of shady, some are a bit more open. So it's going to be, so it's going to be very much like a woodland garden, really. Uh, so it'll be, it's going to be a wonderful area to garden and develop over the years. Is, I have to ask you about your relationship with Rosie. How did you guys meet? Because <laughs> you're you're both in this. I was I was aware of Rosie and, and and obviously both of you, and Rosie's produced gardening television content for a yeah. long time. How did you guys end up? Because it feels like you're going to become like a gardening super couple, Michael. Is what <laughs> I'm getting at. Because it, it's interesting. It's it's not every day that you see two people in that same world who are both passionate about it find each other. Yeah, and and have slightly different views on uh, on subjects. So, um, so you know, anybody who wants to have a look at us interacting, if you look at um, on the Instagram of Growing Cooking, uh, you'll see a few videos of us um, interacting and not agreeing with things. Uh, we tried to put a, a light touch to it. Um, uh, when I was at the nursery, she because she was working on a TV program. She wanted some roses for a Love Your Garden uh, TV program, I think it was, and um, wanted. So she's she's very good at searching out these nurseries that uh, produce specific sort of plants, and, and she's always very fussy about uh, making sure you're getting the best plants for the for the for the makeover of this uh, program. And so she came along to the nursery and um, wanted to see the roses got lined, got lined up for for her to take away. And um, we, when we got there, we found that the um, 
the people who processed them had cut all the flowers off because that's what they do when they send out roses and through the post. They just left the buds, and of course, all of them were beautiful flowers, so they could be filmed the next day. So that causes <laughs> a certain amount of tension straight away. Um, but yes, yeah, so it, it's uh, and and I found out some weeks later that actually she she actually um, although she loves gardens, she didn't actually like roses. <laughs> but uh, she's grown grown to love them. Were you solely responsible for convincing her to love roses? And and how is that even possible, Michael? Like to me, like saying you don't love roses is like saying it's such a big group. It feels like there's something for everybody in the world of roses that it's hard for me to even process that somebody who's in a gardening would be like, nah, roses aren't for me. Well, again, it's it's, it's, this old um, uh, accepted attitude that roses are boring in winter because they're just bare sticks. Well, you know, it's a deciduous shrub. You know, what does a Philadelphia look like in winter? What does the Buddleia look like in winter? What does the Dirtsia look like in winter? They're bare sticks. So a rose is no different. It's I, I, the, the, the fault lies again, I think, in in having whole beds full of nothing but roses. And so, but then you know, you look at a herbaceous border in winter. You know, <laughs> it's not particularly exciting. It's better now because people tend not to cut down their plants. Well, certainly in this country, tend to plant cut down plants until um, in sort of February March time. Um, but, you know, generally herbaceous borders look, look pretty dull in winter on the whole. And certainly in this country, you know, just a heap of dead foliage, really. I have to thank you for sending me uh, a few plants a couple of years ago. One of them was Vanessa Bell. Um, oh, yeah. Interestingly, Michael, um, th- there was this helianthus. Um, this is probably a month ago that uh, Richard Hockey at the Chicago Botanical Garden had said really good things about. Oh, yeah. And it's uh, Helianthus uh, autumn gold, just covered in yellow flowers, just has um, the beautiful uh, thread-leafed Heliopsis uh, species as it's one of its parents. So it's got an interesting textural component too, but this thing was covered in flowers, just remarkably, almost to the point of excess, almost to the point of too many. Which which easily happens actually. I mean, I I always think Chris... Uh, you know the, the modern chrysanthemum. It's just I I, call, I I was talking about it, talking about them to somebody the other day, and they're just a, a heap of flowers. You know, there's no there's no um, subtlety about them at all. It's just a you know it's a, a blob of color. But anyway, sorry. No, no, it, you're completely right, and I think that is something. And I think we can get from what you just said. We can get here in this conversation about it. That so it was. It's yellow, and. I'm aware that many people, at least here in the States, the garden, yellow is not their favorite color. So I put it up for a poll and people did not like this plant, essentially. I think it was was close, but in the poll, I don't love one over love. And Vanessa Bell is one of these plants for me that I think the catalog, as beautiful as it is in the the website imagery, don't do it justice. That it goes through right. a, a tremendous gradation of color as it's blooming yeah. and as it starts to its fade. Yeah. And it almost has um, 
this really subtle ombre that exists on the plant when it's at peak bloom. Do you find that? That like just yellow in general seems to be like, mm. and there are plants like Vanessa Bell that I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't be so focused and linear yeah. in your viewpoint of these things. There's, there's, well, like all colors, there's a huge range in different shades of colors. So, you know, the pink, there's the horrible sort of lipstick pink, you know, really strong shades of pink, whereas the beautiful, right down to the beautiful shades of pink. And then sometimes pink, of course, is not quite a pure pink. It can have a little bit of orange or yellow mixing, which then makes it a slightly peculiar sort of apricot shade. And then sometimes some varieties, they'll start off more of an apricot pink and then change to pink as the flower ages. And then you get this rather unsettling mixture of colours, which I always think uh, doesn't always work so well. Uh, but I think in yellows, it's particularly, I mean, some yellows are, <coughs> are very acid yellows uh, and that, that they're difficult, I think, and they're difficult. They, they often clash um, quite very easily with, with other colours. Whereas if you get the soft yellows like Vanessa Bell, then they're much more much easier. You can put those with pink. So a big owner in the, in, in, the, in the garden world really is putting pink, strong pink and strong yellow together. Um, but if you put a, a soft pink and a soft yellow together, it looks absolutely fine. But a strong pink and a strong yellow together, they just look absolutely, absolutely dreadful. Um, so you do, you, but people are, it's funny, there's a discussion in this country recently about uh, yellow flowers. And um, I, I've never understood why uh, people don't like um yellow flowers because well it just doesn't make sense to me at all it's just well, and there <laughs> yellow are, is just natural colors there are so many species plants that are yellow yeah. <laughs> it just feels like you're you're excluding this this entire thing from the palette that doesn't make sense to me how uh, difficult was that at in your time at david austin in, in coming up with one of the, the things that you know, when we get into a bit of a, how people perceive color and shape and form kind of conversation along these lines that I, I think at least here in America, and, and probably I think this is fair to say across the world, there are people sometimes they become overly focused on the close-up beauty headshot of a flower, that it is just that flower and it's got to be this big blousy flower and yeah. yet the shape and the form and the movement and the texture of how that works spatially is sometimes lesser thought of when you were oh. introducing new varieties at austin was that something that you you were oh, aware absolutely. of absolutely yeah and i think that's where the hybrid tea fell down very badly actually because the emphasis was very much on just the individual bloom, so all they all they were concentrating on was uh, uh, a plant, a plant machine almost that produced these in the beautiful, well, mind's eye, you know, these these blooms um, uh, on the end of very stiff, upright stems, uh, and so it was deemed well. One of the main ideas of why varieties were good. In I suppose the middle of the 20th century was was it good as a cut flower? Was it good as as shown to win the first prize at the local flower show or the national flower show or whatever? And no regard was taken about well, is that an attractive plant in your garden? 
and a lot of them were, were not attractive plants and of course disease resistance were very poor as well. Uh, it's quite interesting, I'm doing a lecture um, uh, quite soon uh, for a, a museum um, in New Jersey, is it, uh, is it Mauve? Or Mo uh, I can't remember the name of it now. And uh, they sent me a list uh, recently of, of varieties that were planted sort of back in the 50s and 60s, along with the sprays that they used at those times. I mean, Lord, <laughs> you know, it's all, all, you, you, you think of the worst sprays that, that come to mind, you know, DDT and, and Aldrin and all that, and, that, that, and they were using all of them. I mean, how the gardeners survived, I don't know at all. Um, but... Uh, Yes, that's, I think that's one of the reasons actually why the English roses have become so successful and so loved around the world is actually it's one of the things that Dave Lawson did very much uh, regard as absolutely crucial. The, the, the beauty of the flowers, of course, is, is very, very important, but you can, you, know, you can have a, a plant that uh, you know, never stops flowering, has the most beautiful flowers, fantastic fragrance, never gets any disease, but actually it's an ugly plant. Uh, and so what you want is all those positive characters of beautiful flower, uh, no disease, lovely fragrance, uh, lots of flowers, and an overall beauty. And so what he always used to say is, is it's not just the beauty of the flowers, how the, how the flowers held on a stem and how the stems arrange themselves in, in an overall effect, which is, um, which is absolutely crucial. And so I, I think that's a very important reason why gardeners have learned to love um, the, the, the Austin roses. And just going back to colour, actually, just one thought which I've never thought of before is actually, you talk about yellow not being light. <clears throat> and then Graham Thomas, really quite a rich yellow, was actually the main rose, main variety responsible for the uh, enthusiasm for English roses. So it's like, that's actually, I've never thought about that before. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I have I had thought about this recently. Um, that it was so interesting to me that that Graham Thomas is this rose that is sort of you know monumental in, in getting the Austin roses to popularity. But yet, do you, I mean, do you think at the time it was different? Do you, I mean, it seems like now in particular, there's a lot of hate for the color yellow more maybe <laughs> is that what it is michael any any input on that because i am shocked i, I mean I, <laughs> I i see um and and i almost think and everybody don't send hate mail okay calm down you nobody get upset <laughs> all right it's okay you guys like what you like it's fine you know we all have different tastes blah 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 but that the way sometimes people approach gardening is so just thinking about that plant that it's just this plant and not in context of anything else not of its setting or anything and sometimes that yellow for people is just like hard to process that like it's just yellow what do i do uh, but then you put a you put a blue or lilac or purple flower next to something like graham thomas woo yo it's absolutely wonderful um, so it's always a trick I, I encourage people to do is actually pick a flower, uh, one two flowers of, of a certain plant, and then hold it up to other to flowers of other plants. And sometimes it'll look absolutely horrible. Sometimes it'll look okay. And then suddenly, sometimes they just they just work together. 
And then that gives you the clue that that's what you've got to do. You've got to plant those two plants next to each other. And so, yes, absolutely crucial. That the the um, real skill in gardening, a very difficult thing to do, actually, uh, is, is getting good plant association. So getting plants that work well together. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it takes a lot of, of trying, to work in, work, trying to work it out. Um, but it's great fun to do. And you, great thing about all plants, just about, and especially perennials and roses included, they're incredibly easy to move. So, you know, even uh, you, you don't have to wait until the winter. You can just chop them back, uh, you know, in, in spring or, or the fall and, and uh, move them across. You just have to be a little bit careful about it. And they'll soon survive. They'll soon grow back and be none the worse for it. And it's always another tr thing to remember is actually... If you see that something wrong in your garden, make the change straight away. You know, you, you you say, "Oh yes, that doesn't work there. I'll I'll um I'll move it this winter. I'll move it next spring or something." And of course, by then you've forgotten about it, or or you've uh, you've uh, said, well, I'll give it one more year and see if it's any better this year. And uh, but you know, uh, one of the very best gardens in this country, which is actually not too far from us, is called Woolerton Old Hall. And have you heard of it? Absolutely. Follow them. Uh, Lovely couple. Yeah. And also, I'm going to give you guys another one here. An underrated, underappreciated Austin Rose is Worlington Old Hall. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So w John and Leslie Jenkins, who, who own Woolerton Old Hall, they, they, they go around every evening with a glass of wine in their hand, criticizing their garden, you know, looking for how they can be, how it can be improved. And uh, if at all possible, they'll get it changed straight away. So I went there once and I found the hedge had suddenly disappeared in the middle of the summer. Yeah, there's a huge hedge there before, I'm sure it was. They suddenly decided that hedge has to go. So they, they dug it out in the middle of the summer. And, um, and of course, the great thing about that is it's ever-changing. So for a garden to visit, it's great because there's some gardens, you, you'll go along one, you, you go along and it's, it's maybe very nice. You go along 10 years later and it's exactly the same. And you say, oh gosh, you know, it's like going to a museum piece, really. Whereas um, Woolerton, you can go there every year and you'll know something quite different will be, will be there. So you know, you'll really want to go back there and have a look. <laughs> so actually, I'll just tell you a little bit of, um, of, of latest news. Uh, you may have seen it on, on Instagram that um, Rosie and I have started uh, a new little garden tours um, business. And so we're... we're it's probably not available to Americans, really. It's, they're only one-day tours, but maybe in a year or two's time. So we're doing very short one-day tours, visiting a couple of really top-top gardens uh, around the country, um, talking to the garden owner, and uh, and then Rosie and I will will go around with our different hats on, looking at them in different ways, and and, uh, and see what we can uh, see about the garden. So it should be good fun. And uh, we launched it last night, and uh, quite a few people interested already i think what is fun about that is and this is actually my next question for you i think one of the challenges that is is plants plants people gardeners horticultural people whatever whatever title we're going to give ourselves that we've got to do a better job of is showing plants in context that i i think so much of the imagery that exist of plants, like in pivoting the business here into starting to sell plants in 2020, 
what I kept noticing over and over again was, okay, it's great. I've got a photo of this peony. It's a headshot of the peony, but it gives you no context of, of how to use it at all. Like what we're talking about with like yellow toned flowers, it doesn't put them in garden settings at all. Michael, I, I think that's one of the real things that everybody's got to probably work on moving forward, especially because imagery and content is so important in the 21st century world. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely crucial. Um, I, I, a lot of the photography, just about all of the photography in the in the latest catalogue, well, in the catalogues in the last few years, they've been taken by um, a wonderful photographer that I've worked with for the last 20 years or so, uh, Howard Rice. And um, so he and I go to go around together and you know, I, I look for lovely shots, and he does as well, because he's, he's a wonderful gardener as well. And then we, we take... Uh, we take he takes the photograph, the beautiful photographs. And uh, one of the things I'm always looking out for is is roses in context. And what we do sometimes there's a beautiful garden uh, quite close to here called Wild Goose, and it's it's um, two acre garden, wall garden, and full of perennials. But what we did, what I did there was I took a whole lot of roses and pots along, and then moved them around and and tried to see what they associated best with. So it's cheating in a way, but of course it's 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 seen what what other plants roses really associated uh, best with, and so it's a very interesting exercise. And that's what I encourage people to do. You know, if you if you buy a rose in the pot during the summer, don't just oh I've got a hole there, I'll bung it in. Move it around and see see where it looks best with other plants. And of course, the trick is that it it's 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 got to be flowering at the same time. So it's no good if a a rose flowers in June, and then the plant next to it is flowering in sort of May. Uh, to, to get the best effect, you want them to be flowering at the same time to sort of create that magical effect of being side by side. So, um, yeah, if you do buy a rose in, in summer, when it's in flower, move it around, see where it, it's going to look the best. Well, for you, are there any roses like Vanessa Bell that you, in your time at Austin, um, maybe that you loved, but the market didn't love? That at the nursery yourself or the team there thought, okay, this is, people are going to love this rose. But you were like, oh, the the sales or just the reception of it was not what you expected. Um, hmm, interesting question. Um, I have to think about that one. I can't, I'm sure there's been one or two. Um, uh, and uh, I can't think of one offhand, uh, which is a classic example. But uh, but of course, names are quite important, you know, and that's why you have to think quite hard about how you name any plant, really. And David Austin always used to say, um, it's got to be a name that, that that rolls nicely off the tongue. You know, it's got to be a nice name. It's a silly thing to say, really, but it's. You can have names which sound nice and and go well with a beautiful rose, but other names which are just you know just not very attractive. Hard names, you know, hard consonants and things like that. So I always appreciated David's early roses paying some 
homage and respect to, you know, Graham Thomas as an example, Constance Spry, Gertrude Jekyll. To me, was that intentional? I have to imagine, obviously, when he names them, it is. But was it intentional in that kind of way in, in paying respect to, to people that had been such luminaries in, in, in the gardening world prior? Um, yes, absolutely. Well, they were both of those, of course, were, were great rosaries themselves. Constance Spry had a huge collection of um, of old roses, and that's what he is, of course, got his inspiration from was the the old Gallicas and damasks and um, albers and things like that. Uh, and of course, Graham Thomas, he was he was the main person for resurrecting interest in in old roses. Um, so y- yes, but of course, apart from that, the, the other great group of names that he used was was Shakespearean names, you know, like things like Falstaff and Desdemona and things like that, and um, and Chaucerian names, people you know, from um, uh, Geoffrey Chaucer and his uh, Canterbury Tales, and they sort of all harking back. So they're, they're, they're good names, there's things like Wife of Bath and Canterbury and things like that. And people uh, can easily, they're, they're nice names to remember, they're easy names to remember, and um, and uh, have nice associations mostly as well. So you're going to be doing these tours with Rosie. You're more yeah. active on social media recently as well, Michael. Is this Rosie's influence or is this just you having more free time? Is it a combination? If you go on these trips, can we can we do can we count on Michael Marriott going live on Instagram if you go to China again sharing these things with us? Is this going to happen? Yeah. Yes, Instagram is. Um, we we really enjoy it actually, and uh, it's a great way of remembering them. And uh, we have a bit of fun at the same time. So it's. Um, I mean, she's the one who really comes up with the ideas of of uh, of what subject to do. We were meant to be doing one today about um, uh, the, the hot the hotbed in the greenhouse. They're under 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 the cable for heating the um, seedlings to get them growing. So we're meant to be doing that today, but we. Uh, we ran out of time, um, so yes, it's a, it's a, it's a matter of keeping going, and we have some we've developed some very good friends uh, through Instagram, and uh, as one of the um, <laughs> she's just coming to the room. Um, that's one of the things. <laughs> Hello, sorry. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's a cameo appearance by Rosie. So, so is Michael, the next time he travels to China or somewhere like this, we hear tales, Rosie, of these gardens with a million roses, but we have no, we have no video proof of it. We have no photographic <laughs> proof of it. Are you going to force him to, to document these things better than he has prior? I'm going to do more than that. I'm actually going to sneakily travel with him <laughs> with a secret camera. And he won't know I'm there because <laughs> and then he won't know until I get back what I've done. <laughs> to just strap a GoPro to him or something and just be like, here, we're going to. Because I, I do think it's one of um, those things that the uh, recently I had Doug Oster on the podcast and he has been a um, garden media personality in Pittsburgh for a long time. And we, we, met him, um, yeah, we met him, didn't we? met we, him about um, four or five years ago. Oh, else. Yeah, and Doug, yeah. Doug is a great guy. And one of the things I yeah. we had a conversation about that I found interesting is culturally with food, we have cities, areas, regions that have a food that it's associated with, that it's a, a cultural thing. When you go to this city, they're known for fill in the blank. But it's something in gardening that we've really never explored. Is there a culture 
of gardening in given cities across the, the world, the country, whatever it might be. And Doug actually felt like in the Pittsburgh area that they do have a bit of a different gardening culture because they had a lot of immigrants. It's a little bit of an older skewing demographic city. So more people garden, he felt it. He said, you'll see people growing tomatoes on their patio and containers far more there than you do in other places. So when you go to these places, Michael, this is what we need to see. Like, is there a gardening culture attached to these places? I stopped you. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave you because I'm preparing for a live as well. Lovely to see you. <laughs> Carry on inter- interrogating. <laughs> so, I mean, do you, have, you, have you noticed that, Michael, in going to other countries that there, there is a, a, a distinct gardening style or feel that is very different, maybe? Um, yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think. Um, uh, each each place that you go to has a has a different um, way of gardening. Uh, I mean, you, you, talking of China, you, you sort of you, you talk about the rose and you you associate roses with Western cultures, don't you? And, and often people think, oh, well, it, when you go to to Asia, to China, and Japan, places like that, they think about the chrysanthemum and the peony. But actually, they they were probably started loving the and growing roses in their own gardens um, before before we did over here um, so several thousand years ago there's, uh, there's uh, evidence of they they love growing roses in their own garden um, but uh, yes I suppose the um, I, I suppose one of the problems with with um, gardening in different climates is often people, always want to grow what they can't grow. <laughs> you know, they, they push the boundaries too much. So, you know, you live in a hot Mediterranean country and you try and grow, grow um, I don't know, plants that want to, you know, damp, temperate to woodland area or something like that. And then the plants end up looking really miserable. So uh, it's, it's a trouble, isn't it? You, you, you've got to really... I remember we went to Palm Springs. We were in Palm Springs this time last year, and um, and loved it. And uh, but walking around the streets, uh, there were these perfect, perfect swords of grass going right down to the to the sidewalk, you know, and all being irrigated like mad, and not a single weed in them at all. And just occasionally, you see some beautiful gardens with full of cacti and succulents and things like that, and looking absolutely superb and we talked to one two people about this and they said well um we we have to have we ha- if we don't use the water uh, our water allocation then it gets taken away from us and then the house is worth less money when we so what a crazy thing there you are living in palm springs with temperatures over 100 degrees fahrenheit every summer middle of a desert and you're forced to use water <laughs> when you the alternative would be to have these fantastic um cacti and succulent uh, um gardens that would look so much better than these boring swords of grass. I'm going to blame your country for this for a moment. Michael. <laughs> I, I, I have said this uh, on the podcast before, that one of the things that I think has been um, at times influential might, might not be the right word, but creates a aspiration at least, is it so much of the imagery and the most respected gardening people in the world have been from the UK. And then in this country, so much of the growing of nursery 
stock and production is done in the Pacific Northwest, that many times I think people are seeing imagery of, of what a garden is and plants in a garden from these two parts of the world that are so drastically different than their own. Like, like for me here in Tennessee, um, yeah. I, I would love to grow digitalis. I, I love them. They're beautiful when digitalis are in bloom. You, you see them or uh, aramaris or something like that, but they hate my heat. They, they, they despise it. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think so much of that, uh, that iconic imagery is of gardens from the UK in a more temperate climate than it is throughout most of the United States, for sure. The people are like, I want to grow that. And you're like, well, no, you can have a beautiful garden. It's just not going to be those exact same plants. <laughs> yeah. No, I still say I, I, I want that. <laughs> so it's, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one, that one. Um, yeah. You, I, th I think people are getting, getting better but it's it's a real challenge isn't it to try and uh, i suppose uh it's just a lot of people just uh, find gardening difficult you know they, they they haven't got time i suppose and they don't have, don't have the confidence to try and use different things and so they've just got to try and <laughs> take the ball by the horn and and um and, and try something different to what's the accepted norm yeah, and, 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 and I suppose the, 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 you know the, the climate in this country does lend itself to beautiful gardens very easily. Uh, whereas you know if you if you uh, if you if you live in a climate like yours, then you just maybe you, you just have to garden in a very different way. Yeah, and I think it's sometimes about leaning in, uh, like what we're talking about with roses earlier. That um, the easy one that I always pick on is uh, Hemerocallis, but the daylily in this region of the world, there's one that has almost become naturalized that lives here. And like you would maybe assume with hemorrhicalis, they'll grow in some sunken areas where the soil is maybe a little bit more moist or a little more rich. And they call them ditch lilies. So right. because of this, it has almost given them um, a negative reputation as a plant that's just boring. It's like a ho-hum plant despite the fact that there are a, a, another group where there are thousands of hemorrhicalis like i was just recently excited that i was able to source uh, a cultivar called autumn minaret that gets to have five or six foot tall scapes on it really spectacular big plant but yet people see them and they think that's boring they, oh that's the, the plant that grows over there and eh, it's boring <laughs> yes Yes, it's, it's it's trying to um, just trying to change people's perception is is very difficult, isn't it? I think that's the value of maybe. Uh, I mean, social media has get blamed for for a lot of things, and maybe that's why people think yellow is horrible. But um, but yes, it's, uh, that's why uh, if you on social media if you post pictures of 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 things like your your daily, maybe you're going to change people's minds a bit. Um, and that, going back to um, to um, to our tours that we're starting this year, actually, one of the advantages is that we, you know, we, 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 especially we've made some good friends over Instagram. Of course, we've never met them at all. So hopefully, actually, we're going to, because we've advertised it through Instagram, we're actually going to hopefully meet some of these people this summer. So it'd be really nice to start meeting um, uh, people that we've only conversed with um, through Instagram. 
No, I, I think you're completely right about the social media component and doing things like your tours. I think gardening in particular, the way I obviously for people that are listening, conversations like this, Michael, help change people's perspective and the narrative of, of how they see plants. And it's one of the reasons why I've always chosen to have this approach where we're, we're challenging a little bit of these traditional um, viewpoints on some plants and making people expand and broaden maybe the way they've looked at them before, put them in a different kind of context is because the world of gardening is obviously a visual media. There's a lot of interesting things going on that it lends itself so beautifully to Instagram in particular being the most visual of all of them, that I think it has opened up conversation. I, I showed um, Dahlia imperialis and um, Campanulata seeds that I'm germinating this, uh, this morning on Instagram. And I immediately got six or seven direct messages from people who had no idea there's a, a, a tall pseudo tree formed Dahlia in the world. So yeah, I think it's absolutely. those moments. Yeah, those tree dahlias are amazing plants, aren't they? Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I I, th I think that's the great value of going to specialist nurseries. Um, you know, rather than going down the road to your local garden centre or you know sells a bit of everything, it's just going to be exactly the same range of plants. Whether you go to one to the other, you go along to a specialist nursery, and the owners are going to be really enthusiastic about their, their choice of plants. They're going to be incredibly knowledgeable about their plants and how to grow them, you know, what, 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 what plant to grow where, and also have a, such an interesting range of, of different plants within that genus or group or whatever. And um, so I, I, mean, I, I hardly ever go to garden centres, but I just love uh, going to specialist nurseries. There's a one uh, not too far from here, called Picton Nurseries that grow asters. And you, know, you go to their garden there and it's just, oh, there's this huge range of different asters. And, and the, the other thing is the, 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 the garden well is, is quite fashion-led uh, as well. So, you know, plants go in and out of fashion. So dahlias are, um, are maybe, they've, they've reached their peak and going uh, over the top now that people are sort of getting... Oh, well, getting a bit fed up with dahlias, really. And I think chrysanthemums, um, some chrysanthemums, anyway, the, the taller ones, not these sort of lump of, of bloom ones, but um, the, the, the taller ones, they're, they're beautiful. I think they could come back. Because they're amazing plants. They plants so late in the season uh, and, uh, and, and go on flowering for a very long time, put up with some very bad weather. Uh, and then I was talking to somebody today about, um, oh, to a journalist, I was talking, for some reason, Lobelia. Uh, do you have? Do you grow lobelia? You know, the little annual blue flowers. I, I do grow of them. Some of them, uh, cardinal, and some of that group. They struggle a little here in the summer if right. they, they dry out at all. They want slightly more oh, yeah. rich, moist soil yeah. condition. They'll do well if you you interplant them. Yeah. In, in a garden, it, it's it strikes me as that type of plant, Michael. That you know, if yeah. you if you just throw it there by itself, like some people do, that that could be struggle. Incorporated with other companions near it, I think it does better. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's sort of in the what the latter part of the 20th century, in, the, in sort of the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. You, you, everybody 
or maybe more more in the middle of the 20th century, a lot of people would rely on lobelia and one or two other plants for this sort of colourful uh, show of flowers, whereas now lobelia, I don't think you hardly ever see lobelia around. But actually, it's a fantastic plant, and so um, it, it's, it's such a shame uh, that certain plants suffer from these um, from fashion. Uh, and so, I mean, like the the red the the, the red pelagonium, um, you know, the the, the troop that the the the, um, the one that's not hardy, not 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 the hardy geranium, but the, the pelagonium. Um, you know, people used to grow those by the, the thousands. Used to, everybody used to have them, and then suddenly, you know, because they're so common, you see them everywhere in parks and things like that. People stop growing them; they're too common. But of course, the reason why they, everybody grew them in parks and things like that is because they're such good plants. They they're incredibly tough. They're easy to grow, and they flower and flower and flower. So it's um, it's a shame that people start ignoring plants because they become too common they've become very common for a good reason because they're very good plants the nursery that you mentioned with the asters was that pinkton nursery p for peter i c t o n and they wrote a book the couple correct on asters i believe i think so yeah yeah and talk about michael in, in regardless of where you're at with your taxonomy kids symphiotrichum aster whatever they just did it to confuse me more yeah. but yeah. What an underrated group of plants. I, I mean, oh, yeah. it's so interesting to me because here we have, um, uh, like there's a, a good cultivated variety of uh, Astromacrophylla, uh, Twilight, that I really, really like. And yet, just a group, Michael, that you just don't see enough. And I'm always no. just, and and from a, a bot, if we were a botanist, our brain would be even more ex- blown by this subject because it's literally, depending upon who you want to ask, the t- number one or number two largest group Asteraceae of plants in the flowering plants in the world. But yet yeah. in gardens, it's hard to even find them sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And but then I, I, maybe you suffer a bit in the states because you 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 travel around in wild areas in in the states and you see it growing wild, don't you? And so maybe over there, do you regard it as a bit of a you know, a wild flower, a bit of a weed almost? And it, it pops. I always remember I was in um, I was in um, uh, Detroit a few years ago ago, and um, they. They had some asters sort of self-seeding themselves around vacant parking lots and around uh, old streets and things like that. And they were beautiful, but that was because that was my eye because I was sort of come from England where it didn't really see that. Whereas probably a lot of people over there would just see, oh god, the weeds. <laughs> no, I think you're. I think you're completely right. I think you just you you hit it on the head because um, I'll pick an, on another plant here, Aster aracoides, is native through this area, and you will see it. Yeah. And there was a selection um, from the Chicago Botanical Garden um, from, uh, I think it was Ulm there, but anyways, uh, called Bridal Veil. And it's it has some of the Aracoides habit, semi-prostrate, upright yeah. in the middle, but just covered in white flowers late in the season. And so, and so attractive to insects as well. I mean, the bees absolutely love it, don't they? And yet that's a plant that I think really struggles to, to gain traction from a commercial perspective yeah. because I think you're right. People see it and they're just like, oh, well, and I, again, I think it's a context 
issue as well, that we don't see them in a garden setting. We see them as, well, and again, it's like a weird, I used this term the other day, Michael, that occasionally gardeners are very shallow in the way that they look at their relationship, that I'm not going to debate that uh, a an herbaceous peony in full bloom as a flower next to an, an aster close-up shot, which is, is, is more visually interesting to our eyes as human beings. I, I don't think that's it. But if you zoom that picture out and consider the fact that the peony blooms <laughs> for two weeks, <laughs> if I'm lucky here in this part of the world versus the yeah. aster that I might get four to six weeks out of and this texture and that, I think that's maybe, I think hopefully the future of where some of these gardening conversations go about plants, that it becomes a little less flower focused talk all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what people, what people want to help with actually is, is, is giving them ideas of what groups of plants work well together. And, and how to spot that, you know, it's what I was saying earlier on, when you pick a flower and offer it up to other flowers in your garden and, and see which, which work well. And you know, it's, anybody can do that. It's, it's no great skill. And you, know, and you might think it's, it's a, has a, looks beautiful together, and, and that's, that's a personal thing. And if other people don't, don't think it looks good, well, that, that doesn't matter. That's their view. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those personal things. That's how you make your garden your garden make it a personal creation that's that's so satisfying i think uh, i i made that garden i created i put those plants together and keep on looking at it and see if you can improve it all the time all right so at the very end here we're going to do this thing that i don't like doing but when i have you on i think it's just fun to do it even though i think it's not the thing that people listen to the podcast for but it's a fun thing because there are people that are like is he gonna say like a david austin rose that like i should be growing that i'm not are there a few that in your world, like the, the new ones I, I haven't grown, those are interesting to me, the newer introductions, at least here in the States, like Emily Bronte and that group. Um, what do you think? Anything out there that, that's more recent that for you were like some of your favorite children out there and the newer introductions? Uh, I'm not sure they're all that recent, but I'll, I'll see whether you grow them or not. Desdemona, do you have that one? You, you sent me Desdemona and I can't say enough good things about I'll tell you where you got me with Desdemona that I liked, and you mentioned this earlier, is the height. It's not as big as some of the other Austins that I have. No. So it That's the advantage of it. Yes. It fit this very nice mid-border location where I didn't feel one of the uh, – I'll, I'll pick on a rose for a second, but um, Queen of Sweden in my climate can get to be seven feet tall, very upright, more, you know, um, fastidious form to it almost. But Desdemona is this beautiful mid-border rose. Yeah, I mean, I would put that at the front of the border because the um, the flowers are so fragrant that you want to be able to smell it. You don't want to be, you know, trampling over other plants to try and reach the flowers to smell them. Uh, you want it at the front of the border so you can just sort of, as you walk past, put your nose to it and appreciate that gorgeous fragrance. Um, so what else? Um, uh, Eustacea Vi, have you, have you got that one? Haven't, haven't grown it. Looks yeah. beautiful in the catalog. I guess the only thing yeah. that I was curious of is what separated it from some of the others in its color tone. Was there any form or shape or something like that? Or was it just a beautiful selection? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, 
I said trouble when you start. Um, we've introduced quite a few varieties, uh, but they're all they are all they do all have their own um, character and, um, and and different sort of maybe subtly different flower. But it's is it. Um, it does. Eustacea fly has a lovely mix of colours within the flower, and uh, and and actually a gorgeous fragrance as well. And it's very healthy. And that, I think that's we touched on this earlier on, and I I didn't develop it. The um, always my my gripe really with a lot of the hybrid teas and floribundas as well that they bred them to be a solid colour from from the day it opened to the day the petals did or didn't drop. So what you and it's a bit like again I'm I'm sort of really picking on chrysanthemums but there's very little variation of color and so you look at it and it's just a block of color. Do they sell? Do you here in the states chrysanthemums? They just put them in the fall. That's a big thing here, especially in the southern United yeah. States, is doing these big balls of chrysanthemum. Yeah. I feel so bad for the growers, Michael, of these chrysanthemums. <laughs> I just look at it from a production standpoint and I'm like, what a Boring, monotonous job. It's <laughs> be to pinch these chrysanthemums all day. Yeah, it's like producing cabbages, isn't it? It's just sort of rows and rows of cabbages. Um, but I, I think one of the so and attending trials, I always remember one of the one of the things that we were meant to judge was was there any fading of the colour. And I say, well, fading that to me is actually nice. I like the rose to fade the colour. So if you have the colour to be same from day one to day 10 or whatever, then it's just a block of colour. But actually, if you get a nice variation of colour, so it comes out a certain colour and then it gradually fades as the flower ages. And to me, that's much more beautiful than, um, than solid colours. It's much more of what I call an impressionistic sort of mix of colours. Um, how do we get onto this subject? Uh, yes, that's right. I was saying that Boston <laughs> roses that maybe fire. maybe we haven't grown or people haven't paid as maybe much attention yeah. to that you like. So you stay survive within that flower, so it does fade in color gradually. But you stay survive within the flower actually has quite a lot of variation uh, in color. And that makes it very nice, and it's got a gorgeous fragrance as well. And another rose, and the trouble is the, the years fly by so quickly. Is and this is probably quite an old variety now. But I can't remember the date. It's probably it maybe as much as fifteen or maybe more years old. The generous gardener. Do you, maybe it's not a rose for your climate. I don't know. No, um, actually performs exceptionally well. It is by far. All right, so I'm going to say this again. People don't send hate mail, okay? But um, <laughs> I brought in some uh, Cordes roses uh, two years ago. Uh, Kiss Me Kate. There was a few newer introductions. And one of the things that I have a really pet peeve with, with some rose introductions as climbers, Michael, is I find the canes, the new growth sometimes to be too brittle on some of them. Yeah, absolutely. And it yeah. totally defeats the purpose of a climber to me if I can't help it along and train it if the if the canes are so brittle that they snap. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of yeah. like, is this a climber or is this just a really fast, aggressive growing rose that comes up out of the ground fast? And what I like about generous a tree rose. Yes. And, and what I like about generous gardener so much, the canes are supple enough. You can work with it, you can bend it, and it is super floriferous even at yeah. a young age that you can just see its potential 
And one of the very interesting things last year was that because of the lockdown over here in this country, uh, a lot of the staff at the nursery in the garden were furloughed. So in other words, they weren't allowed to work at all. So there was literally, usually sort of two, three gardeners look up look after the rose garden at the nursery. Last year, there was literally just one gardener. He didn't have any time to do any deadheading at all. So a lot of varieties, instead of um, producing repeat flowering, they produced hips. And the generous gardener was one of the very best of the lot. And uh, he showed pictures quite recently um, on Instagram of uh, the generous gardener that he was just about to prune, because we're, we're pruning the roses now. Um, absolutely covered in really beautiful, large, orange, long-lasting hips. Uh, and so it's one of the things is, you know, don't be too obsessed sometimes about deadheading. Uh, sometimes you'll, you might get a lovely crop of hips that actually looks very beautiful. ties of these old abandoned rails wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own and I try to empathize with all they bear there's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way You lock all your windows 
Cause everything